I'd love to see someone try and beat a horse jockey on an elephant. <laughs> I'll add that to the calendar. This episode is sponsored by Linode. Do you need a Linux server for your latest creation? Then check them out. They provide SSDs, 40 gigabit per second network connections, and top-of-the-line hardware to run your server on. It deploys Linux in seconds from the Linode cloud, and you can choose your Linux distro and node location right from the manager. They have locations in Asia, North America, and Europe, and they have a sweet set of tools to make it easy to manage it. If the web interface isn't your thing, they also have an API and a command line. So definitely go check them out. They also provide two-factor authentication, IPv6, DNS manager, cloning, scaling, and everything else that you want. So definitely get the most out of your Linux node and check them out at linode.com. And check them out at devchat.tv slash linode. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another Adventures in Angular show. This week on our panel, we have Joe Eames. Hey, everybody. Lucas Rubelkey. Holler. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. One quick thing before I introduce our guest. He's actually one of the speakers for Angular Dev Summit, which, as this is released, um, is going on right now. So if you go to angulardevsummit.com, you can still get a free ticket. The all-access passes are also available. This should come out on Tuesday. The price goes up on Wednesday. So if you want the all-access pass with the chat and everything else, uh, videos, then you definitely want to sign up for that right away. And uh, yeah, our guest today is Gleb Bamutov. I hope I got somewhere in the neighborhood there. Do you want to give us a brief introduction? I don't think you've been on the show for a while. Yeah, sure, Chuck. And thanks for inviting me. Um, I'm Gleb Bakhmutov. I've been you know, involved with Angular, a web application framework, you know, a long time ago when Angular just turned one. And I loved it. And uh, I've been doing different things. I'm not working in, in the front end anymore. So I've been doing a lot more Node.js work. I recently joined a small startup called Cypress. And that's the subject of this podcast. Yeah, in particular, I, I kind of want to get into end-to-end -end testing. And then, and then you can kind of talk about you know, how Cypress solves these particular issues. Because I'll tell you, having been a web developer for over 10 years now, I have never found an end-to-end -end testing uh, situation that I absolutely loved. And uh, I would love to just dig into what some of those issues are. I know that uh, just from our pre-call that, that Lucas has expressed similar opinions about a lot of technologies. So... <laughs> So, yeah. So, I mean, I think the big challenge for me has always just been they take a long time for one. And the other issue is, is that I have to stand up all this stuff and do all this work to make it work. And then I go use something like Selenium WebDriver and I wind up writing an app to test my app. <laughs> right. Do, do those issues sound familiar at all? They're, uh, they're familiar to everyone, I think. Right. Imagine you have to... Even install Selenium, right? It's so many dependencies that you have to get just right. And, and then the second anything changes in your environment, it kind of crashes, right? And, and it stops working. It's this rigid system where you have to set up and, and pray that nothing affects it in any way for it to continue working. Yeah. Lucas, you, you were complaining before the show. Uh, what, what issues have you had with end-to-end -end testing? Because it sounds like you've had some nightmare situations too. Well, I think testing is like flossing in the sense that, you know, I think in theory, everybody agrees it's something you should do. But 
Um, you know, I mean, I, I've never met anybody that said like, no, like you should totally should not test your app. Like everybody's like, yeah, like I think you should do this. Um, but I think it takes a very disciplined person to kind of work through the or get enough momentum to kind of achieve that escape velocity to you know, make it kind of an everyday thing and something that's part of their tool chain. Um, so just consistently, when you ask developers, like, are you testing? You know, it's kind of these awkward, like, uh, and I think people want to test, but, you know, it's just there's a lot of things you have to do. There's a lot of secret handshakes and, um, you know, dial turning to get it right. And so with unit test, it's a little easier because you can focus on a single piece of code. And, you know, I think that there's been a fantastic job done with Protractor, but it's built on top of WebDriver, which is, you know, really kind of like an elephant, if you will, that we're trying to put like, you know, a horse jockey on top of. And it's just a really kind of hard, cumbersome to, to get working, um, you know, reliably, a lot of false positives and different things. And so it's just one of these things where like everybody should do it, but, you know, just the... Uh, the barrier to entry tends to be so high. I think a lot of people do not. So it's it's not even does it go totally wrong. It's just it's really hard to even just get started. Can, can I point out something like right away that, yes, we should be testing, but as a developer, you're not getting paid to actually write tests, right? The client never says, okay, I'll give you, you know, 100K for you to write more tests for this project, <laughs> right? It's It's completely unpaid activity it's actually something you spend your time on that cuts into your profits and your sanity usually to actually write us and what happens as well is if you're actually trying to write new features for which you do get paid the tests get in in a way right they are tremendous drag because if you refactor feature if you change how it works all of a sudden you have to if you have tests rewrite the tests as well so at some point you look at that, it's like, I should actually drop all the tests because I'm not sure if a feature is actually doing what the client is expecting to do. So I'm not going to write any tests because, well, I'm not sure if a test will, will actually be useful. So the tests get in your way. They're not, you're not paid to actually write tests. And all the extra effort that goes into setting up a test tool, you know, writing the tests and then you know, actually using them is pretty much wasted, I would say. Now, it could be wasted. I've worked for companies where it was mandated that we write tests, but it was usually pretty complete unit tests and then end-to-end tests if they didn't take too terribly long. Right. And the other I issue- think that uh, companies should pay by the unit test. That should be the <laughs> only way people get paid from now on. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you have 135% yeah. test coverage. Uh, well, oh, like also test. Yeah. Well, so I don't want to poo-poo on tests, though. Like, there is you know, a lot right. of studies that shows, well, I think that the fallacy is, is that, oh, we're not going to write tests. It takes too much effort. But over the, the course of the you know, software development lifecycle, that, you know, when you write tests, it actually allows you to get more done you know, quicker and more reliably. So it actually reduces the overall quality or rather, um, you know, expense and effort of the project in the long term. But it's very hard to, you know, really convince that because it's rather intangible at the beginning. Uh, absolutely, yeah. but but tests do give you confidence, right? Ultimately, you need the software to work, and the only way you can kind of check it if it's working or not is by running it through a bunch of tests. Now, you know, 
avatars hard to write? Yes. And, and that's a second problem that I think we should talk about is, you know, the testing pyramid, right? So Google came out with a book, testing software, and on the cover they put, you know, the triangle, the testing pyramid. And at the base of a triangle, you have your unit tests. You write a lot of unit tests. They test each part of code in isolation. And then you write a few, you know, pure tests and what's your integration tests. And finally, at the top of a pyramid, like a very small percentage, are end-to-end tests. And everyone is like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. It's easy to write unit tests. But imagine yourself from a client's perspective to the user of your website or your web app. The end-to-end test is what matters, right? That's what we see. That's what we experience, right? If I cannot add an item to it, you know, to my cart and check out, that's my end-to-end experience that's not working. I don't care if you, you know, have 100% code coverage on every aspect of, uh, of your code. If it doesn't work together when it's deployed, then I don't care. I think, you know, the software is broken. We just have this perspective of testing pyramid because it's determined by the tools we have and not by how relevant it is, it is to the actual human user that's outside of our uh, system. I don't know. All of my users, I mean, they go in and they use my stream down caser and then they mm-hmm. use my other little piece. And no, no, they don't. You're right. <laughs> One other thing, just, you know, because you're making the case for end-to-end tests. And I, I completely agree with you, especially when it comes down to, you know, different levels of integration. You know, if you have things that have to run the whole stack and back and forth and microservices and all the other things that we do nowadays, you know, it, yeah, it, it can get, uh, you know, it can get complicated. And if it's complicated to test, it's also complicated to get right. Um, right. So one of the things that uh, I see with end-to-end tests is, yeah, just just having that. I mean, especially with like mission-critical systems like payment and stuff like that. It's, I mean, that, that I mean, those are the areas where I start first, right? It's what yeah. are they paying for and how are they paying for it? And if those things don't work, then then it doesn't matter how good your unit tests are. Exactly, exactly. We we write a lot of unit tests not because they are really determining the quality of software, but because they're so easy to write. We have a choice of excellent testing frameworks for JavaScript, right? It's kind of like golden age. You know, you have your old standby like tape, you have Mocha, you have new ones like Ava and Jess who are excellent frameworks. They do so many interesting things uh, right now, like you know, just with snapshot testing is just incredibly useful. It yeah. completely removes so much code from my spec files because I can just take the whole result and without even computing it by hand, just have a test. Yeah. One thing I do want to say for unit tests is that when we write software and we make decisions at that level, it is easy to encode all of our assumptions into those unit tests. So, you know, we're not saying that unit tests aren't valuable. What we're saying is, is that a lot of times we don't see the value that we could get from end-to-end tests. And the other thing is, is that sometimes they're hard enough to write to where the trade-off, we we don't see the trade-off as being worth it, even though we do see that there could be massive value in them if we could get them to work on those critical parts. Right, right. It's always a question of trade-offs, right? If you see the value, but it's hard to actually achieve it, well, you kind of let it slide. And that's what I was that's what actually attracted me to Cypress in the first place. So I, I heard about them almost a year and a half ago. 
And as soon as I, you know, got beta access and I could download and actually use it, I, I just fell in love. I, I wrote a blog post, you know, a long time ago, and I called it, uh, I think, finding uh, testing Nirvana with Cypress. Like, have you ever heard Nirvana and testing in the same sentence, right? Like, what's almost impossible to find? Unless there's a a not Nirvana. Exactly. Isn't Nirvana like impossible to achieve? So maybe it is appropriate. I, to me, it's a state of mind, Chuck. Okay. <laughs> uh, exactly. So it, it's hard to achieve, but that tool, I, I thought, gives the closest to Nirvana experience. And, you know, just to kind of, the things that attracted me to, to the tool was that it was so easy to install. It has a great feature set. And, and finally, it actually made testing so easy and useful that I could actually keep running the test and get value out of them. Like I could see them fail as I rewrite the code or update the code. Because uh, I could see them, you know, for example, failing in CI was actually very useful because it generates screenshots and detailed log messages. And it actually tells me where the test fails and, and, and why. And it was so easy to actually look at the assertion and instead of like seeing a ginormous stack trace with mostly like promise callbacks, mm -hmm. I could actually see what failed and why. And I could uh, like, oh yeah, I forgot you know, to initialize you know, this, this data or something. Right or this uh, you know call to the server backend failed. It's incredibly interesting experience, and Cypress did put a lot of effort into, for example, useful assertion messages. Right, like literally, the messages when something goes wrong are incredible, and because ultimately you write all the tests and they only give you value when they fail, right? Not when they pass. When they pass, well, they're always passing. Or should be passing. Only when they fail, that's when you actually find how good a testing framework or tool is. Mm -hmm. Does it give you all the info to immediately pinpoint a problem? So how do you set up those messages in your tests then? Because I agree with you. I mean, that's one of the things that I've run into, you know, as I've gotten better at testing is um, making it tell me exactly what the problem is and setting up my error messages in my code so that it gives me good feedback. Because, I mean... I, I see good tools that give you good information. You know, they give you a good st stack trace and things like that. But having good error messages that I encode into my app is just as important. So how do you strike that balance? And, you know, what is it about this tool that makes that part of it easier? Mm -hmm. Just to step back, imagine you have your test framework, right? And if something fails, Usually you have an expectation, like you expect some particular value to be equal to some value that you computed by hand. That's, that's good. Mm -hmm. You know that's good. Yeah. And when Mocha fails, for example, it will just say expect like false to be equal true or something. And you have no idea. That's you really just helpful. see the test name, right? It's like, well, I have a test name. I have no idea what happened, right? Mm -hmm. And libraries like, you know, Jasmine matchers and Jasmine and additional third-party libraries, they actually wrap around assertion statement. And for example, instead of just saying expected value to equal something else, they actually tell you the, the code line that failed, uh, the nice value printout. Sometimes you can pass extra text messages that, that you want, but you have to write them. 
So Ava, for example, gives you the, the values of all the variables inside the test at that moment when it fails. So you can actually see more information. Um, but for example, you have no idea if in a, if in a long test, if the previous assertion assertions passed and we reach values, right? So in Cypress, because we're testing a visual stuff, right? We're testing a web page. Mm -hmm. You can actually see the log of all messages, of all assertions, of all steps a test is taking up to the, you know, the crash. So you can actually see, oh, I logged in, went through, I clicked on a button, I entered some text, I pushed this button, everything was fine. And then, for example, I made an assertion, I expected to find some you know, text on a page, like, let's say my login name, and I never found it. Mm -hmm. So I see the, the entire test run step by step. The assertion message could usually print something like, I expected to find this text in this particular area of my page, and I could not find it. So you kind of see what it was trying to do. And then you have a screenshot of the entire thing, so you can see how the page looked uh, at the moment when it crashed. And just to go back, let's say Selenium, right? Or any of um, headless browsers. When they run, you actually don't see much, right? Um, usually if, if it's controlling a browser, it's kind of off the side of a page or flashing too quickly for you to, to actually see what's going on. Cypress is an electron-based app, right? Mm -hmm. So it actually pops a GUI with Electron Browser by default. And when it runs the test, like you should actually see the video on um, cypress.io website. It actually shows you step by step and you can see the page being interacted with by the test runner. So you can keep it open and see what's going on. And if a test fails, then you can actually go back and click on every step inside the failing test and see not just a snapshot of a dump at that particular step, but a snapshot of a dump before and after each step, before and after a button click, before and after, you know, you typed in some text into an input box. So you can see each step and what each step achieved. And you can even see like some hints we actually show uh, with like red rectangles, like which button we actually clicked when we clicked on the button. So you can see if it goes somewhere, you know, in, in the wrong place, for example. Trying to be as useful as and as helpful to a developer when something goes wrong. Now, that that's interesting to me just because usually when I was doing end-to-end -end tests, um, what I would run into is uh, basically, and we can dig into this in a minute as far as writing assertions, but but yeah, it was, okay, you know, how do I tell it what to expect? And then, you know, I, I like to run my tests headlessly, especially on CI. And so I have no way of knowing what it's doing. Right, right. Um, so on, on, again, we run on CI, as, you know, via Electron Browser. You can, we can record everything there. We, you know, we take the screenshots. Uh, for us, the Electron runs in CI, like without any problems. As, as long as you have, you know, virtual server, uh, XVFB, then it works. We, mm -hmm. we have tests and examples in every possible CI. We have Docker containers that we prepare with all requirements. Uh, we even have uh, Docker images with Cypress pre-installed 
So if you have a repo, you can just use that container and start testing right away. It's it's a sweet system. We we never have problems. Again, when it fails, it actually takes the snapshots and and gives you detailed information. And just on the other side, not only you can take screenshots, you can record the video of a, of a browser while it's running, and you can either store it locally as a movie, or you can upload it to our Cypress dashboard, which is our SaaS you know, paid product. So just a little plug. If you don't want to manage all the artifacts and screenshots and you know, test histories, you can just pay for, for our dashboard and all the things will be uploaded there. And you have central location with all your passing and failing test data. So the Electron app is free then? But Yes. So just you know to kind of describe our plans. So we wrote this uh, Cypress testing tool and it's great. We convinced some companies to pay for beta access and I was at a company before where we actually paid to have beta access and we were very happy. And, um, and later we you know, kind of heard the same kind of objection to trying Cypress and, and using Cypress. And the objection was, if I invest time and I write my end-to-end tests using Cypress API and using Cypress test runner, what happens when Cypress folds or decides to raise prices tenfold? All that effort kind of goes to waste, right? Mm-hmm. So nobody wanted to invest in a small company's proprietary testing product. So after you know long soul, soul searching, we have decided that yes, we kind of got a good thing. We knocked that you know testing thing out of a ballpark, but we have to open source it. Otherwise, it will not gain market share at all. It's just you know, like. And you, you would not invest too, right, your time into writing something for closed source to, to run. So we decided to open source the entire desktop application thing. You can run it yourself. You can run it on CI. It's electron-based app. It has all the features. There are no limitations. And that, that thing will be open source really, really soon. We are preparing a major release 1.00 where all the limitations of beta access will be removed. All the source code has been pulled into a single repository. It's all is very, very well tested. It's it's building. It's a nice tool to have. And now you can write Cypress test and you know kind of sleep, you know, assured that your investment in writing test will not disappear. And Cypress as a company has a paid product, which is our SaaS dashboard, where you know, just running your tests, you know, 100 times in CI is nice, but what happens when there is a failure? You know, you want to record a video. Now, you can record the video and probably store it as artifact on your, you know, CI server, but you can send it to our dashboard and then comparing the successful run to a failing run would be trivial. And Cypress actually generates a lot of data. You know, every time you click on a button, it generates events that describe what happens. So what we can do in a SaaS product is be very efficient about how you investigate a failure, right? You can kind of compare the, the failing and passing test run 
and quickly find, oh, this is what changed. This, this is a different mm-hmm. event. Let's say my backend did not respond in a way, you know, I hope it would respond. And that's what led to you know, UI failure later. So we have some sweet, you know, uh, features in Assess that are not part of the app, not because the app is limited in any way. No, it's just the app by itself, by working with single test run, cannot do these things. You know, right. think visual, you know, diffing of screenshots. You, you cannot do it in a test runner. You have to have previous, you know, uh, screenshots if you want to do visual uh, difference. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's what we hope uh, to make money on the SaaS product. But the tool itself, completely open source, and we welcome contributions from community. Um, for example, we have. Um, limited ourselves to Mac and Linux platforms and people asking for Windows version. And it's an electron-based app, right? It should be easy, but we just didn't have time to implement the Windows support yet. Right. So Nice. Well, I think that's a pretty decent walkthrough of what you get with Cypress. I, I have some other questions about just end-to-end testing in general, though, that I would like to dig into. Um, but first, why don't, why don't you tell people where to go get the open source version and the the SaaS version, just so that, you know, if they're like, oh, I'm so interested in this, they can, you know, they can go check it out while they're thinking about it. Okay, so for everything Cypress-related, cypress.io, like a tree, cypress.io, um, there are links to beta access programs, so you get notified when the open source launches. Follow us on Twitter at cypress.io. We have a Gitter channel where we constantly ask questions at uh, Cypress uh, slash Cypress. And um, we do have a GitHub repository where right now all we do is answer people's issues, right? Which we kind of use to keep track of feature requests and bugs. That GitHub repository, Cypress.io slash Cypress, will become the open source once we move all the code there. Okay. Uh, so so I guess uh, it, people have started that repository more than, with more than a thousand GitHub stars, and I can only imagine how popular it will become once it actually has code and not just you know problems. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Are you searching for a new job? That can be stressful, scary, and time-consuming. Pushy recruiters try to sell you on roles you don't actually want, and the job boards make you feel like you're throwing your resume into a black hole, never to be seen again. And sometimes you go all the way through the interview process just to find out at the very end that the salary, offer, or company culture doesn't match what you're looking for. Hired is the world's most intelligent talent-matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities in engineering development, design, product management, data science, sales, and marketing. We make your job search faster, focused, and stress-free. Instead of endlessly applying to companies and hoping for the best, Hired puts you in control of when and how you connect with compelling new opportunities. After completing one simple application, top employers apply to hire you. And on Hired, you receive personal interview requests and upfront salary information so you can make informed decisions about what opportunities to pursue over a condensed timeline. Hired offers access to more than 4,000 innovative employers, including big brand names like Facebook and smaller emerging startups. The size and type of company you want to connect with is totally up to you. And we help you find new opportunities in 17 major cities in North America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. Open to relocation? Let them know. Your privacy and autonomy in your job search is of utmost importance. And if you go check them out at the show's link, that's hired.com slash adventures in Angular, you can get double their normal hiring bonus. 
So instead of $300, you get $600 for signing up at our link. That's hire.com slash adventures in Angular. So back on to end-to-end testing here for a minute. One other thing that I ran into when I was writing end-to-end tests is what level of specificity to get to. So, for example, um, if I have a UI and it puts like the username or some other information on the page, right? When I first started writing end-to-end tests, I'd say, okay, well, uh, there should be this DOM element inside this DOM element inside this other DOM element that has this text in it. And I found out pretty fast that if I ever moved it, it would break my test, even though it, it was fine. And so, um, you know, at what level do you specify this kind of stuff? I mean, do you just check if the username's somewhere on the screen? Uh, do you yeah, check if it's visible? I mean, you know, yeah, what, that's what, a constant problem with end-to-end testing. Yeah. Yes, I absolutely understand the problem. The way we implemented this is that you don't have to specify the long kind of selector path, mm-hmm. right? Think of your like header, and then inside there should be navigation, and then inside should be username, right? Right. Uh, Cypress has this interesting API that's fluent, so that means you can chain calls and keep chaining, like you know jQuery, and you can, for example, select a header and then say you know, that find and then select navigation and then that will return you a navigation inside the header. And then you can chain there and, for example, find username. And you can find username by both a CSS selector or by text, So, which is really nice usually. Mm-hmm. So that, that means first that you can easily see where the selector goes wrong because if you have it in three different steps, if one of the things changed, then that particular step will fail. You see? Uh-huh. For example, if you moved your username from uh, from navigation somewhere else, well, the first call to get the header will succeed. The second call to get the navigation will succeed. And then it will try to find username, and it will fail, and it will show that particular step fail in a screenshot. And you're like, oh, yeah. Well, it's the wrong element. Now it's, for example, in a body of a website, not in a navigation header. So that's nice. Uh, But also, I want to point out one thing is that, first of all, we have aliases. So you can, for example, define an alias to navigation element. That means you can set up a call and say, get a header, get navigation, and remember as and then an alias name. An alias name is something, you know, could mm-hmm. be any any string. And then later inside your test, you can say, get me that navigation element and find username. And so you can reuse the same kind of selector, but it's all like a chain API in other tests so easily, but you can only set it up once and you never have to repeat yourself. So if you move your, uh, for example, navigation somewhere, you can just update a single alias command and all your tests Will, will stay the same and, and you don't have to remember it. Okay, so we kind of solve, I think, this problem by being very flexible in how you write your selector through API and not by hard coding these long selector strings. Right, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I just want to point out one thing where I think a tool independent of any particular UI framework is actually very useful. So think about, you know, tool like even Protractor, right? It's really Angular specific. Mm-hmm. Um, something else could be really specific to React, right? Or, or 
some other tool or some other framework. And let's say you're doing a rewrite of your website, right? Or you plan to do that. It's hard to actually work with two frameworks on a page if you have to use two end-to-end testing solutions, right? So by actually working with just the DOM and you know server requests, uh, Cypress allows you to set up tests and then do major rewrites, you know, switching frameworks, updating libraries, whatever you want. And the tests are still running because it's not related to any particular framework. We have examples for all major frameworks. We just work with dumb events and dumb modules. We work directly with server requests by intercepting them. And, and I guess that's it. And we work with a browser APIs. So you're not depending on a particular framework. So that actually allows you to experiment a lot and rewrite a lot of things without updating a lot of tests right away. So one other question that I have, and this is something that I've also run into with some of these tools like uh, Selenium WebDriver and PhantomJS in particular, is the DOM engine, right? So I'm assuming it's running on, you said Electron, so I'm assuming it's running with WebKit, uh, Chromium. But PhantomJS has, at least in my experience, uh, used older versions of uh, WebKit. And, you know, it doesn't update as often as I would like, and so it doesn't always have... Uh, some of the features that I assume the browser is going to have. Do you just rely on uh, Electron to keep you up to date with your engine? or We do rely on that. We do rely on that for built-in browser. Okay. Um, but we can also load and control through Chrome extension API any Chromium-based browser. So okay. straight out of the box, you can run on Chromium, Chrome, Chrome Canary, and, and, and it just works. We are actually looking at supporting other browsers because now the extension API has been kind of standardized so we can actually control other browsers almost as well as we can control Chrome. So in a future version, we'll definitely will support other browsers. Uh, so you're not limited to just particular um, thing. One, one thought I have to add to why we're different from Selenium, right? And you kind of said it's almost like riding right, an elephant on top of a horse or something. Uh, so Selenium is almost like a black box and you control it by kind of throwing messages there and say, hey, type this. Well, you, you don't know when the typing actually happens. You don't know what the DOM looks like, right? You have to ask it. It's a very stateless system. It's kind of like black box. Uh, you can you hope that something you know updates there, but you don't really know, and this leads to a huge problem, which is timeouts, right? Let's say you push a button. Well, when you know has your framework actually updated the button and updated the screen? You you don't know. You can you cannot set up a webhooks or mutation observers if you actually use Selenium or WebDriver. So by loading Electron browser. By loading the test runner right inside the browser, we have full control and full access to the DOM API, right? That means that, for example, when you push a button and when you make assertion that the new user login name is displayed, Cypress will actually watch the DOM and as soon as it notices the DOM mutation, it will compare the text. And if a text is what it expects to find, it will continue the test. 
So when if you look at videos of Cyprus, they are too fast. It's not because we sped them up. That's how they actually run in Cyprus. They run extremely fast because we have direct access to the dump. We don't have to wait longer than necessary. And this also has a very nice side effect is that when you run tests, you almost never have to do, you know, Cypress wait, you know, five seconds for something to update because Cypress has full access to everything. It just knows as soon as it finished, you know, something happens, it can continue. By default, we allow, for example, assertions to wait up to four seconds for something to change. And if, if expected value is not there, when assertion fails, but you can set a longer limit. We can also spy and stop more, you know, server requests. So we can actually know when, for example, API returns something. So we can immediately continue. We know when the page loads and you can immediately continue. There are almost no need to add any delays, unlike the Selenium, which is like a black box. So you have to kind of wait and hope that it finished. So one other question that I have is, do you set up the test cluster, what it's going to hit? Uh, so for, for test cluster, USTI runs either Cypress, which uses the built-in Electron browser, or you can specify with a browser that you want to control, and you know that browser should be installed. We are looking at, you know, source labs and browser stack, and we could potentially integrate with them. Right now, right now, to be honest, I think the majority of evergreen browsers do this, you know, a good job of actually doing the same thing when you ask them to, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's, you know, gone over days when, you know, your normal kind of website looks completely broken in one browser, but completely works, you know, works very well in a normal browser. It's, it's, we're not comparing, you know, Firefox to IE6. So what I would suggest is that Run, writing all almost all your end-to-end -end tests and assume you have Electron browser. And only if something is found to be broken in a particular other browser, then you probably should write a Selenium test for that particular thing. And then you run in, in on a browser cluster like you know Source Labs. Uh, we found that majority of cases you you're good if you know the newer modern browser works well. And in that case, you, you really need one browser to test. I think the trade-off at this point of testing across all the browsers, you, you have to justify it for complexity just so you can say, uh, we test on all browsers. Yeah, I was actually aiming more for the server setup. So I have to have my app running somewhere. Uh, oh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, sorry if I misunderstood. Yeah, you do have, you know, your actual web app deployed somewhere. Okay. Um, and you can control this easily through environment variables if you want to change and, for example, test something else. At Cypress blog, we have examples how we actually test, uh, you know, a hypothetical website and across different environments. For example, we run Cypress locally as we are, you know, run, you know developing it. It reruns the tests. We update the test, it, it's passing locally, then we run it on CI by starting the server in the background, running the tests against the server. Then, for example, we deploy the website somewhere into staging environment, and then we rerun the same test again, but we point at that particular staging URL. 
And the purpose of that is that there are so many moving parts, you want to move just one of them, right? So once you deploy, you want to rerun the same task to make sure that you deployed correctly, but all your database connections went through, all your environment variables are set. So when you deploy to staging, you rerun the same end-to-end tests against it. Then you deploy to production, and you again, you run either all end-to-end tests or a subset against that particular URL. So by making end-to-end test run as easy as a single CLI command, it makes it so much easier to actually test your app in all environments and make sure that all of them work or easily see where the problem happened. I, I see Lucas has an interesting question. Lucas. So I pretty much just want you to take my money right now. <laughs> I, I cannot take your money. It's free. Uh, oh. So if you're comfortable, like, I mean, how much does this cost if I wanted to take my super hot tech startup and we're going to IPO in like eight weeks and I need to pay you to make sure that my, my code is, is working and stable? Um, I mean, do you have pricing plans? I didn't find anything on the site, but this is this is pretty compelling technology. But the tool itself, you know, is free, so you can install it and run yourself. You don't have to pay anything. We did invest a lot in writing the documentation. So if you look at the docs.cypress.io, the documentation is just exceptional. We literally, for a five-person startup to spend 40% of development time over the last two months, just like writing and updating the docs is, is just incredible investment of time. You don't have to pay us to read the docs. You don't have to pay us to you know communicate with us through GitHub or Gitter channel. If you decide that you want, for example, to store all your tasks and have like extra features for your CI environment, like task history and some other you know interesting features, then we can talk about you know paying for the Cypress dashboard, and that depends on the number of private repos and the number of total tests. But I expect it to be a couple hundred dollars, you know, for a normal size company. Um, and if you want to pay us for private support and you know kind of helping you write very effective end-to-end tests, then we can talk offline, and I'm sure it's not going to break your budget. How much a bad quality will cost you? That's the question you should ask yourself. Ooh, I see what you did there. <laughs> how, much, how much is it avoiding a catastrophic failure worth your company? Exactly. It's not the cost, it's the value. Yeah, that's... Uh, so I, I will say this. Um, this is completely... I'm not being paid to say this um, by any means... Uh, actually, um, Cypress has kind of been on my radar uh, for a couple of weeks. Somebody had shown it to me and uh, super pleasantly surprised that, uh, you know, Gleb is involved. I have a lot of respect for him. So kind of while we're setting up on the pre-call, I installed Cypress and went through kind of their getting started guide. And it is really, really insanely easy and super pleasant. And so kind of with these magical, like, I can't actually believe this is working Especially, you know, in light of, you know, how hard I've had to work to get even like Protractor up and running or even, you know, Karma or different things. So, um, you know, I definitely recommend, uh, you know, for everybody listening to this, go and take five minutes and 
install Cypress and write your first unit test. And then more importantly, write your first end-to-end test. And after about five minutes, you're going to be like, holy cow, like that was, it feels like a trap. It was too easy. So thank you. Thank you. That was super awesome. Thank you. And I just want to plug in, you know, for, for everyone's sake, Angular Dev Summit next week. I'll be showing, you know, Cypress in action. I'll be showing how to test an app, you know, whatever common pitfalls, how to stop a server and do all these interesting things using the latest unreleased yet version of Cypress. Uh, so, you know, join in, watch me, pay for the ticket so you can rewatch it later. Everyone should uh, watch Angular Dev Summit next week. Tickets are free. And when Tickets this comes are out, expensive, free. Well, I'll buy yeah. three. Yeah. And when, when this comes out, uh, Gleb's talk is Friday morning. So, yes. you know, so it's this Friday. It's not next week. It's this week as this is released. So, you know, we're recording this a week before the conference, but yeah, definitely check that out. Um, cause it's, it's going to be terrific. And I really tried to get more hands-on, um, demo style talks. So, you know, some of them are going to be conceptual, but I think most of them are going to be sort of the, here's how you do a thing. And so if, if that's kind of the thing that you're looking for out there, then definitely check it out. Yes, I'll, I'll do my best to do, you know, live demonstration. I probably will record videos just in case mm-hmm. because you never know. But uh, it's, it's going to be just showing end-to-end testing. That's it. Awesome. Anything else that we should have uh, dived into here, guys, as far as, you know, end-to-end testing goes? I think you really would just have to see it to believe it, to be honest. Yep. So go try it. Yes, please go try it. Um, it's it's a nice tool. I, I loved it. And that's why, you know, after being a happy, happy user for a year, I joined the team. It's it's that good. Awesome. Well, uh, the last question I typically ask before we do picks is if people want to follow what you're working on now, Gleb, um, or just follow you on Twitter, or GitHub or whatever, uh, wh- where do they go? Maybe you have a blog or something, too. I do have a blog, so you can find me, you know, just by typing my last name, Bakhmutov, which is kind of hard to type, B-A-H-M-U-T-O-V, as in victory. The easiest way is to follow Lucas on Twitter and find who he follows and find me there. (laughs) Nice. Follow one person. Nice. (laughs) Uh, But yes, so I do have a personal website, uh, glebakhmutov.com. Links to my GitHub projects are there. Uh, There is a link to blog. Um, I do blog a lot. There are a lot of stuff, including a lot of stuff on testing. And um, uh, sometimes I'm active on Twitter. So if you go to Twitter and search for Gleb Bachmutov, you'll find me under my last name. Uh, I'm really happy with my parents when I, as soon as I was born in the Soviet Union, picked a good Twitter handle for me and I got it. Just my last name. I wonder if Ruble Key is available. Uh, I'll be back. Hold <laughs> <laughs> the fork down. <laughs> All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Are you ready to master Angular? Oasis Digital offers Angular Bootcamp, a three-day intense workshop class for individuals or teams. They cover Angular 4 and 2 and focus on the skills and knowledge you need for complex, data-rich applications. They also still offer AngularJS for teams supporting older projects. Bring them to your site or send developers to them in St. Louis, San Francisco, New York, D.C., and other cities and online at angularbootcamp.com. Joe, do I'm you have ready. some picks for us? Yep. 
so I'm gonna got a couple of picks today. The first one is gonna be the new Brandon Sanderson novel, Oathbringers, coming out uh, in just a couple of months. I've been rereading the other books in the uh, it's the Stormlight Archive, and I'm halfway through the second book. And boy, they're just fantastic, such fantastic books. So if you haven't read those yet, uh, I highly recommend them. I really enjoy them. Read everything from Brandon Sanderson. He's yeah. Insanely. Yep. He's just one of my favorites. Absolutely. Even the graphic my, novels are terrific. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> and my other pick is uh, I've got a new course. It uh, should be about roughly out about the time this releases, maybe a couple weeks after. And that's uh, on Pluralsight.com. It's migrating from AngularJS to Angular, which for those who aren't in the know, that's Angular 1 to Angular 2. Two, which is now on five. <laughs> so, got a whole course in which there's a major section just devoted to what to call Angular in there. <laughs> nice. So, yep. There you go. So those are my picks. Yeah, and just to uh, plug that a little bit, if you want an easy link, uh, go to devchat.tv/pluralsight, and we get credit for that. So, if you sign up, nice. Ooh, yeah. All right, Lucas, what are your picks? All right, I'm back. All right, so I would also like to uh, just plug a book uh, that I read recently called Perennial Seller, um, The Art of Making and Marketing Work That Lasts by Ryan Holiday. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Ryan. Um, his Ego is the Enemy and Obstacles is the Way uh, books um, are pretty phenomenal. Um, so I guess those would be like my sub-picks. Um, but he's really kind of turned me on to the concept of, of stoicism and uh, just a really fascinating, you know, author, and I think he just killed it on this book, uh, Perennial Seller, and just highly recommend it. It's just a, a really well thought out um, kind of playbook on how to create uh, things that are going to stand the test of time. Awesome. Yeah, EO is the Enemy was terrific. I haven't read the other one. I'm going to jump in here with a few picks. So I've been kind of taking uh, control of my infrastructure and mainly it's just either I don't want to pay for these services because they get expensive. For example, Slack is like six bucks per month per user or something like that. Um, if you want the backlog, which I do and all of that stuff, uh, it turns out there's an open source version of Slack. It's not made by Slack. It's called Mattermost. Um, it has most of the features that Slack has. It's super easy to set up. It was funny because I was like, you know what? I need a break. I'm going to spend a couple hours setting up Mattermost. And like 10 minutes later, I was like, ooh, this is really nice. <laughs> so uh, I, I'm really, really liking that. I'm also going to be using it for the chat for the conference. And so I can host it all. And um, I had people that, you know, they would get into the Slack room late when I was using Slack because I was using the free version and, you know, no backlog. And so they're like, where do I get the information that you put in here before? And so I'd have to post it again. Or if I didn't log in for a couple of days, then they were out of luck. Um, so anyway, this is super nice. And uh, it also allows me to move the infrastructure I have for devchat.tv. I have five or six people who help me with the podcast as far as production goes. You know, I had to set them up as channel-only people. So I didn't have to pay for their access. And I have a couple other people that do more than that for me. So I have to pay for them to be in. And it just turned into a bit, kind of a, a, a big mess and you know trying to save costs there and it's nice just to be able to pull people in and say hey this is the you know the dev chat place so anyway uh, I'm, I'm moving stuff over there i'm probably going to do it with the adventures in angular slack 
and uh, other things. So if you go to adventuresinangular.com slash Slack, it'll still take you to the Slack room now, but I am going to be changing that. Um, and then, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really, really liking it. They were also picked up by, um, I think they were bought out by uh, GitLab. And GitLab's another thing that I just set up. And they were super easy to set up too. So if you want your own, um, basically, GitHub that you host yourself, um, I pay GitHub between the devchat.tv organization and my own private repos. It's not a ton of money, but it's it's uh, less money for me to just have my own GitLab set up. And then I can also do whatever I want there and keep it private or public or what have you. And so I'm, I'm really, really enjoying um, having both of those things kind of in my back pocket. So I'm going to pick both of those. Um, and then just another reminder, Angular Dev Summit, you've already missed uh, a day or so. Uh, don't miss any more. Uh, it's free. <laughs> I mean, it's it's free and it's online, so you don't have to travel. Uh, just, uh, you know, sign up and then come join us. Uh, Gleb, what are your picks? Uh, my, I have only two picks. The first one is Kenzie Dodds has done an excellent job, you know, talking about and teaching JavaScript testing course on front-end masters. And he uses Jess for unit tests, and then he uses Cypress for end-to-end testing. And he does like an exceptional job explaining both tools in great detail and, and showing how they can be used effectively. So Kenzie Dodds front-end masters JavaScript testing is excellent. And my second pick is a competitor to Cypress called Test Cafe. So in open source, we are not, you know, really competing if we're open sourcing our tools as much as we are growing the ecosystem. But Test Cafe is an interesting idea. They have implemented end-to-end testing using a similar API to Cypress. And they also reached a conclusion that closed source testing tool will not work. So they open sourcing it recently. And uh, it's a great tool. You should check it out. See if, if, if you like it even better than Cypress and use it. They picked a strategy of creating a paid version that we will release with extra features. So you can use open source end-to-end testing tool or future paid version with extra features. So we'll see how that uh, works out for them. Uh, so check out Test Cafe. Excellent project. Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming, Gleb, and for uh, helping us figure some of this stuff out because I can tell you I, for one, have found end-to-end testing to be a pain in the past, and this sounds really, really nice. Well, thanks for having me, and uh, happy testing. Yep. See ya. Bye. Peace. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.